If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be there in just a few moments. And as you're turning there, just a couple, uh, couple things to let you know of upcoming uh, events, a couple prayer events actually. We're going to be beginning our Wednesday night ministries here at Mount Hope September 11th, and we'll start that off. Our kids' ministries will begin that night for our girls' ministry, for our uh, girls and Royal Rangers for boys. And we're going to start off for the adults. We'll start our classes the following Wednesday on the 18th. On the 11th, we will have a, uh, a worship and prayer service in here. Uh, we're actually going to have uh, Dennis Duncan, uh, brother of Avon Duncan, here. He's going to share about, he's a global outreach, one of our missions partners, but God has radically changed their call and location, and you're going to be hearing about that that night, and uh, you're going to want to be here. We'll also pray just as we start the fall, uh, start our ministries here at Mount Hope, kids and teachers going back to school. We'll pray over that time as well and spend some time to start our ministry year off in prayer. Another prayer opportunity is this Thursday night. Uh, there's an event called 10 Days Boston. It's been in your uh, bulletin the last few weeks, 10 Days Prayer Boston. And that's an event that's organized for prayer between the high Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. They organize 10 days of prayer, some of these churches in Boston, to pray just for God's presence in the city of Boston, God's renewal, God's revival of the city of Boston. And uh, as a part of that, they go to different locations in the city, and they have a couple locations outside the city, and we are going to be the North Boston kind of campus location for that prayer night, and that's this Thursday night. Um, it's going to be an opportunity where, I don't know, maybe 10, 8, 10, 12 churches uh, will be represented here. We're going to pray together. Uh, what I look at it as, on the 11th, that Wednesday night, we're going to be praying for our ministry year and all the things going on here at Mount Hope, but on the 5th, this Thursday night, we get to partner with other churches that are also starting their ministry year. We get to pray with them for what God is going to do in their church. Ask God's blessing upon their church. And also remember that it's, the kingdom is a lot bigger than any one church. We get to partner with each other. Uh, so uh, we'll have uh, Brian Wilkerson, I know from Grace Chapel, will be here. And they'll have some people from Grace, Hope Church in Winchester. Uh, will be here. Uh, the Global Evangelical Church just down the street, the Ugandan congregation uh, will be here. Our Spanish church uh, will be here as well, and as well as a number of others. Um, and so I welcome you to come out Thursday night, 7 to 9, prayer and worship. It'll be good just to pray with one another and uh, to hear other churches pray uh, for their needs and for ours as well. So that's this Thursday night, 7 to 9. As we begin the message this morning, I want to show you a little video clip that some of you will recognize, others of you it may look very foreign to you. Um, as some of you will have seen it when it first came out, others of you may have seen it on retro TV or late night TV at times. I am talking about nothing less than the Jetsons. And uh, some of you uh, may have recognized this cartoon, and if you don't, it's kind of about what life may be like somewhere in the future. Of course, the cartoon was probably made about 40, 50 years ago, and we're still not there yet for a lot of these things. And you may be singing in your head the theme song now, Meet George Jetson, his boy Elroy, daughter Judy, here's Jane, his wife. And... Uh, Life in the Jetsons world, 
as I watched this video and as I thought about the Jetsons, I thought about the message this morning, there's one part of the Jetsons that I find extremely unbelievable. That of all the stuff that I am just extremely incredulous that this would ever be the case in the future. And it's not about robots cleaning your house because we have that. I robot down the street in Bedford, and they, they make robots to clean your house. We're getting there. It's not about flying cars because people are working on that. This one down the bottom is a little rudimentary, but I love that one at the top. I want one of those. Um, it's not about living above the city, the Seattle. They've got buildings that do that. And it's not even about cars that fold up into briefcases. That's not nearly as unbelievable as one aspect of the Jetsons that I just have a hard time believing would be present now or in the future where the Jetsons live, and it has to do with George Jetson's job. George Jetson's job. Those of you that saw it, do you remember where George Jetson works? The Spacely Sprockets. He works at Spacely Sprockets, and he makes sprockets. His technical term, the, his, his title was Digital Index Operator. The Digital Index Operator, which I guess is fitting, because really his only role and responsibility had to do with his index finger. The, as far as we could tell from watching the Jetsons, George Jetson's job consisted of going to Spacely Sprockets in his car that folds up into the briefcase, sitting at his desk, and pushing a single button all day. Once in a while, Mr. Spacely would come on and yell at him, and he'd have to push a couple buttons. But for the most part, one single button all day. I find it, of all the things about the Jetsons, I find it most unbelievable that we will have all these inventions in the future and we can't figure out how to get a machine to push a button for us. That we are still going to need someone like George Jetson to sit around and push a button. But I bring that up for this reason because this morning I want to talk to you about work. I want to talk to you about work and as I thought about probably perhaps someone in uh, fiction who maybe had the most mundane job anyone could have, George Jetson has to at least be in, in the argument. Because sometimes, I think there are some people who may feel like going to work or wherever your job is, it is sometimes mundane or lacks meaning. If anyone's job was mundane or lacks meaning, it had to be George Jetson's. He was not connected to the outcome of his work. He didn't see what happened at the end of the line. All he did was sit there and push the button. And I hope... My hope is that in most of you that are in here and you go to work, and my hope is that you are excited to go to work, that you're overjoyed, that when you go to work on Tuesday or maybe you're going tomorrow or maybe you have to work later today, that you are excited to go to work. You are joyful. That's a meaningful place and a purposeful place. And if that's you, you might find it hard to believe that there are others who are sitting among you who do not share your joy. There are others sitting among you who are not excited about going back to work. There are others sitting among you who could not be more happy that tomorrow is Labor Day and so we don't have to work, many of you. And, and, and so it may find that hard to believe, but there are people who may find their work environment 
a bit mundane. But this morning, I want to talk to you about how do we move from mundane to meaningful. And I think we can move from mundane to meaningful, especially as Christians. I think it's possible to go to work with joy, to serve there in thankfulness, and to go from what might seem like a mundane place to an extremely meaningful experience as you're at work. And I think the way we can do this is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And we're going to look at here and find three important principles of work, three important principles of how to go from mundane to meaningful in work. I want to let you know before we read this passage, because I think it needs a little preface, that in this passage, Paul is giving instructions to slaves and to masters. And of course, that language, anytime we hear it, and especially when you hear it in a biblical passage, is going to great, and it's going to raise a lot of questions, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But let me just preface it with this comment. Remember the last few weeks, we've been talking about this idea of Christians are to live in mutual submission to one another. And in those last few weeks, Paul has taken some of the more difficult places in life or places in his society where it may not be thought people should be living in mutual submission and addressed how Christians are to be living in mutual submission. So he took, in the first week, we talked about husbands and wives. And uh, we talked about not only does the Bible talk about wives submit to your husband, but talks about husbands submit and love your wives. Live in mutual submission. That's under that. Mutual, love your wife is mutual submission. Last week, we talked about children. Not only do children have to obey parents, but parents have responsibilities to the children to live in mutual submission. And this week, Paul addresses what is perhaps the most difficult place in his society for someone to live in mutual submission. It was this slave and master thing. But what it was, it was also the reality of some of the people he was writing to. I mean, some of the people that Paul was writing to as Christians were living as slaves. There were, at one estimate, 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire in the first century. It was about one-third of the population. So it was not some small thing off to the side, hidden, that, that people didn't know about. It was in, an integral part of society. So if, if the Christian message, if, so, if Paul couldn't address Christians that found themselves living in that situation, how could he address anyone else? So he, he says, no, the Christian message can apply in all these situations. So he addresses it even here. I want to look at it through the lens of work, and I'll tell you uh, a little bit more about that in a moment. But uh, let's look at it, the passage. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. I want to pause there for a moment and read that again. 
Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. What's the same way? The same way is just the instructions that he gave to how a slave is to live. I'm not sure in the 21st century if we can appreciate how radically countercultural that statement is. Talk about mutual submission. Paul says, you that are living as masters, you need to treat your slaves as good as they treat, as you would like them to treat you. He gives them the same instructions of how to treat them. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. Let me just address this because I don't even think we can go on without being able, I think this obstacle is going to be there. Unless, let me just talk about this slavery issue for a moment. Is the Bible condoning slavery? I, you know, absolutely not. I, I don't see any condoning of slavery in this passage or in any passage of the scripture. Uh, Paul is speaking to people, Christians especially, who are living in this reality. They can't leave it. Uh, if they can, Paul says in another passage, you should. If you can gain your freedom, go for it. But for many of them, this, not only was this not an option, this was the way they provided for their family. So slavery was also quite a bit different in first century Rome than what we think about. We think of 18th, 19th century slave trade, a race-based African slave trade in the British Empire, the United States, the colonies, and throughout the world. It's a little bit, that's a lot different than what slavery was in the first century. Uh, in the first century Rome, uh, you probably, most likely, you wouldn't recognize a slave. You wouldn't know them from anyone else walking down the street because most of them did not live in the same house as their masters, the people they were serving. They would have lived in their own house. Some of them were doctors. Some of them were professionals. Most, many of them were more educated than the people they worked for because they had to oversee the affairs of the people that they worked for. So they were more educated than the people that they worked for. Many of them gained a great income. Many of them would purchase their own freedom. In fact, it would not be unusual for most to believe that by the age of their late 30s, they would have been able to buy their own freedom. And many slaves did that. And so it was a much different aspect than the race-based slavery that we often have in our minds um, when we think about slavery. However, that being said, it was still slavery. And at its basest definition, it was still one person, one person claiming ownership over another person. It was still the objectifying of a person, and as Aristotle put it, as he described slaves in his day, he described slaves as a tool with a soul. It was still the objectifying of a person so that they were seen merely as a tool and not a person. And so in that way, yes, slavery was different in the first century, but it was still obviously something that was heinous and it's not God's plan and the Bible's not condoning it, um, but we do need to understand that there was a difference into what Paul is writing into in that society and at that time. Um, slavery went on a lot, obviously, longer than it should have, even though they were making some changes even in Paul's day. Uh, and Christians were a part 
uh, William Wilberforce and others of uh, you know bringing to an end much of the slavery uh, that took place in the uh, in the 19th 18th centuries uh, but it didn't happen soon enough more Christians should have spoke out and more Christians should speak out now uh, many of you are aware of this slavery that's going on in the world now by some estimates the people caught up in slavery and in the, uh, specifically the sex trade and all of that uh, could be more slaves now than there were, when, uh, there were when, we, when there was in the days of slavery that we think about. And Christians are speaking up but need to speak up even more uh, about that. Um, so I, I say that to say, because I, I think we need to be clear, uh, I don't believe Paul, the Bible God, in any way is condoning, endorsing this in any way. He is writing into a reality that many people lived in. What I would like to do is make the jump and take these principles and say, if these principles can apply to someone working in the harsh and hostile conditions of slavery, when under the law they were considered property and not persons, it can certainly apply to any difficult, harsh, even hostile work situation that any of us might find ourselves in today. That if Paul can say and apply these principles to someone living in a slave-master relationship, certainly we can take them and say they must at least apply to whatever working situation we might find ourselves in today. And the type of work you are doing, whether you're paid for it or not paid for it, the type of work you are doing is not nearly as important to God as these three things, who you're working for, how you're going about your work, and why are you working? And those are the three questions I want to shape our last few minutes together with today. Who are you working for? How are you going about your work? And why are you working? The truth is work was created by God. Work, uh, when we work, we have dignity. Um, the fact is God created work. As early as Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to, say this four-letter word with me in church, work. Say it again. Work it and take care of it. Notice this is before Genesis chapter 3 where sin enters into the garden. Work was something created by God as a part of his design in creation. I know some of you thought it came from the other place, but it came from God in heaven. Work is a, comes from God. I believe that, and I don't have chapter and verse to cite this, but just exegeting the scriptures and looking how God operates, I believe we're going to have work in heaven. I don't know what that'll be, but if God designed uh, the original earth for, for us to work, why wouldn't the new earth and new heavens have meaningful, purposeful work for us to do? I think it'll look different, obviously, but I think work, work is something from God. And our work is something that doesn't have to be mundane. It can be meaningful. And you don't have to change your job to change your work. You don't have to change your job to change your work. Let me give you an example of that. So this summer, we traveled a couple times by uh, airplane while we were traveling for, for vacations. And airports are interesting places to me because they're like uh, little laboratories for work. Because no matter where you go, you can go to Boston or D.C. or L.A. or Bangkok or, 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 or Russia or Moscow or whatever airport you're in. Whatever you're in, they, everyone pretty much has the same job. I mean, they're going to take your ticket. 
They're going to take your bags. They're going to check your bags. They're going to get your bags on the plane. They're going to get you through security. They're going to get you on the plane. They're hopefully going to get your bags back to you. They're going to they're serve you on the plane or whatever. But, I mean, no matter where you are, everyone's pretty much got the same job description. But it's amazing to me how different people can go about their work even though they have the exact same job. So this summer, one time we're leaving Boston, and usually we have a great experience out of Boston, but it just happened this morning. We came across someone who, you know, she, she was not happy and joyful to be there this morning. And, and she got us through, uh, but literally doing the minimum and saying the minimum she had to, to get us through. And we got through security with, uh, and it was uh, usually, I don't mind security. Look, they're doing their job. They're trying to keep us safe. They got to do what they got to do. But these guys just, again, you know, they weren't, they weren't happy to be there. They were, uh, you know, saying, look, you should know this, and obviously, and why didn't you know this, and get that laptop out, and unzip that bag, and take that coat off. And Wendy and I got through it with our kids, and we were just like, that was miserable. It was one of those times we were like, Someone should just write a letter and just be like, this, is, this doesn't have to be like this, you know? And, and sometimes you have those experiences, and they're just doing their job, and they're working. Uh, and contrast that, at least we contrasted that with our, one of our experiences this summer uh, in Dallas, when we were flying out of Dallas. And this isn't a contrast between Dallas and Boston, uh, because Boston, like I said, we usually have a great experience. But we were flying out of Dallas, and um, we get to the counter, and Kim met us there. And that should tell you something, that I can remember her name. I have no idea what the lady's name was in Boston. Kim met us there, and Kim was happy to see us. And she took my kids and their bags, and she had them put them up on the scale and weigh them, and then she had them put the sticks. She said, you know, your job is to put the stickers on the bags, and she had each of the kids, they felt so important, they're putting their stickers on the bags, and they're going to get them there, and she's telling them all about the airport, and how they need, how she needs their help, and then at the end of it, she gave them the little wings, you know, and said they, you know, they felt like they worked for the airline, and it, you know, it was just this delightful experience, we were going through security, and it was as delightful as security has ever been. I mean, they were like making jokes and making us laugh. I mean, it was just, it was just, it was fun. We got through there and we thought, what a great experience. And then we get to the gate and Kim is there taking our tickets. And she's welcoming us to the plane and telling us how happy she is that we're, you know, we're on the flight. And, and that was great. And we get on there and we like felt so good sitting on the plane. And then we look out our window and Kim and like five other people are on the tarmac. And they have this banner they've unfold that says, like, y'all come back now. And, and here's what happened. Our plane took like 10 minutes to push back, and they stood there the entire 10 minutes smiling and waving. And, and you just thought, I thought the same job but different work. And instead of wanting to write a letter of complaint, Wendy is like, I got to tweet this out. I got to tell the world. And so she sends, this, she sends this tweet out. You can see on July 22nd, you know, great Texas hospitality at JetBlue at the DFW airport. Kim was fabulous and made my kids' travel experience fantastic. And then JetBlue Airways uh, tweeted back, at Wendy Piccarello, that's so great to hear. Here, Kim is a rock star, and we'll make sure her supervisor knows it. And so it's, uh, you really think, look at that, and this is really just to get my wife more Twitter followers, so if you want to follow her, um, <laughs> just 
appreciate that. Um, but no, really, if you just, you look at that and you contrast one experience with the other. Same job, completely different work, the way they went about it. What is the difference between one experience that makes you want to write a letter of a complaint and another one that wants you, makes you want to tell the world about how great an experience you had? How you go into work can make all the difference in the world. I believe there's three principles in this passage this morning that can move us from mundane to meaningful work. And so the first one around this question of who are you working for, to go from mundane to meaning work, meaningful work, work with Christ as your boss. Work with Christ as your boss. I don't know who you think you're working for, but if you're a Christian, you are working for Christ. Verse 7 says, serve as if you are serving the Lord and not men. So that tells me when I go to work, when you go to work, that means I'm not serving a man or a woman. I'm not serving a supervisor, a boss, or a company. Serve as if you're serving the Lord. Christ is ultimately your boss. That kind of changes the perspective on things, doesn't it? On how you go about your work. You know, it doesn't matter where your paycheck comes from. It might say Raytheon or IBM or Leahy Clinic or, or some other organization on it. But ultimately, that provision and that job is really from Christ. You're ultimately working for Christ. And here's the importance of that because our identity and the way we work can change by who we think we're working for. Let me just give you an example of that. 2007 survey conducted by Florida State University. They surveyed employees that were in kind of difficult or hostile working environments, and they contrasted that with employees that uh, were serving in what they felt were comfortable work environments. And, and this is the results that came out. 30% of those that were serving in difficult work environments slowed production or purposely made errors. That's contrasted to 6% of the norm. 29% took sick days off when they were not ill, contrasted to 4%. 27% purposely avoided their boss, compared to 4%. And 25% took longer breaks, compared with 7%. So who you are working for, if you don't have a good relationship with your boss, it affects the way we go about our work. You take longer breaks, you make more mistakes, you're not as conscientious, you just don't care as much. But when you are working for Christ, when you are working with Him as your boss, it really changes your perspective. It changes who and how we go about work. The bottom line is God judges our work more than any other person we work for. Here's a couple scriptures. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from his boss. doesn't say that. Each will receive his praise from God. Ultimately, Christ is your boss. Another scripture says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 
Notice it doesn't say the things done in church or the things done when you're volunteering or the things done when you're doing something you feel good about. The things done in the body, whether they are done nine to five when you are working or when you are in church on Sunday or when you're at home with your family, all those things are included. And so I have to believe that the way we go about our work and how we work is important to God. Because God says that ultimately we'll be judged on all the things done in mind and body. And God alone is the judge, so it's who you work for. So how do you practically, you know, remind yourself of this? You know, I, I don't know what you need to do. You don't have to put my boss as a Jewish carpenter sticker on your car, but, uh, but you, might, you might put a scripture at your desk. You might put, uh, you might pray. When you pray in the morning, do you pray over your work day? And I don't mean, Lord, get me through this day. <laughs> but do you pray through your work day? Lord, I got this meeting today with this person. They've been difficult in the past. It's been hard. They're a hard person for me to love. It's hard for me to see things from their perspective. <clears throat> Would you help me to love them and see them as you see them? Lord, I got this project today that's due, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to finish it. Would you give me the skill and the ability and the time to do it? Lord, we've got this project as a company, and we want to do it well. And, uh, you know, the people we're working for, we want to give them a good product. Would you help us to do that? Or how about this one? When's the last time you prayed for your boss? God, would you bless her in the work that she does? Would you bless his family? And, and would you bless him in the work that he does? Would you help her to lead well? Would you help him to lead well? Not just the people you like, but praying through your work day. It might be a good reminder that when you walk into that office, that laboratory, that sales floor, that store, that, that, that business or that school or whatever you're walking into, that you are walking in working for Christ working for Christ. So the first thing we remember to go from the mundane to meaning is that we are working for Christ. The second thing to go from mundane to meaning is work in a Christ-like way. Work in a Christ-like way. The passage describes about how Christians should go about their work. <clears throat> and one important point, it says, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. <clears throat> And what this past is literally saying is, give your whole heart. And, and the, the, the wording is, have a single heart. Don't be divided in your heart at work. When you go, don't be divided in your work. Don't act one way in front of your boss and another way when they're not around. Don't be given maximum effort <clears throat> when your supervisor's watching and minimum effort when they walk away. Because what that does is that causes you to work with duplicity. It causes you to have a, a division in the way that you work when people are around. And I'll tell you what, one strategy of the devil, one strategy of the enemy is anytime he can get you to act duplicitous or hypocritical or bring division into your life, you act one way when some people are there and a different way when others are around, that's a strategy of the devil to just divide you. So Paul says, no, 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 act the same way. People are watching or they're not watching. Wholeheartedly, single-heartedly. Have one heart in the way that you go about your work. And when you are at work, be at work. 
When you are at work, give your all wholeheartedly. Work with all your might. Give it all for God. Work in a way that has integrity. That's sincerity of heart. Respectfully, the scripture says, giving proper deference. Not just giving lip service. But the reality is the world around us doesn't really buy into that. Most of the people you're working around, their goal is to give minimum effort and get maximum reward. I mean, not all. I mean, I'm not saying, but there are many people you're working around that their goal will be, how can I put in the least and get the most? And yet the Bible tells Christians to work wholeheartedly. One kind of humorous example of this is, I don't know if you're aware of a little basketball tournament in the spring called March Madness. Um, But there's a little basketball tournament that goes on. And the, the thing about March Madness is the beginning rounds are always played during the day when many people are working. And I think there's actually studies done about how much work, like, is lost during March Madness from people not doing work and watching the basketball games. And there's just one website where you can watch the games. And then up in the top corner of the screen, they put something called a boss button. And when you click on the boss button, it automatically covers your screen in a spreadsheet. So it looks like you're working. That's kind of a humorous example, but I don't think it's too far from the truth sometimes. And when the boss isn't around, I gotta check my, I gotta update my Facebook status, I gotta check my emails, I gotta do this, I got stuff to do. And then, but when the boss is around, we act differently. Paul says, wholeheartedly. Bring your whole self. Don't be divided. Bring your whole self to work mentally and physically. Martin Luther King Jr. uh, has a quote. You know, we're celebrating the 50 years of the March on Washington and his I Have a Dream speech. And Martin Luther King Jr. was eloquent in many of his uh, speeches. And the I Have a Dream is just the one that's the most well-known. But he said this about work. Martin Luther King Jr. said, If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, Sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. I thought, what an incredible perspective, right? If it falls your lot to be a street sweeper, then street sweep so heaven will take notice. Do your job in such a way that heaven takes notice and says, here's one who worked well in their job, no matter what it was. To work well. Another quote, this one by Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr. This is the Martin Luther he was named after, the 16th century theologian. Martin Luther said this. Uh, Martin Luther was approached by a working man who wanted to know how he could serve God. Luther asked him, what is your work now? The man replied, I'm a shoemaker. Much to the cobbler's surprise, Luther replied, then make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. Luther didn't tell the man to make Christian shoes. He didn't tell the man to leave his shoe business and become a monk. He said, make good shoes and sell them at a fair price. 
go about your work in the way that Christ would go about his work. Go about your work in the way that Christ would do it. Do it in a Christ-like way. You don't have to change your job to change your work. You don't have to change your job to change your perspective, to go from mundane to meaningful. And the final uh, point is this. So there's the who are we working for? We're working for Christ. There's the how we work. We're working in a Christ-like way. And the third is why are we working? Work for Christ's reward. Work for Christ's reward. I know you may be thinking you're working for a paycheck or maybe you're thinking because you're, you're working to be some part of some greater mission that's being accomplished, but ultimately you and I are working for Christ's reward. Ultimately, you and I are working as Christians no matter what job we're in because Christ is the ultimate rewarder. There's some scriptures that uh, back this up. Matthew 16, 27 Jesus says, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. And some of the last words of Jesus recorded in the Bible, the Apostle John records them in Revelation 22:12. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. It's interesting to me. You know, we think about heaven as a reward, and heaven is its own reward. And, you know, from my perspective, man, heaven is enough. If we just got heaven, we've gotten much more than we deserve. But Jesus says something about rewards. I don't even know what that is. The Bible doesn't spell it out, but it just says they're there. Jesus says there'll be rewards for the way that you work, the way that you live, the things that you do. Now, I think we're going to be so caught up in how great and awesome Jesus is that we won't even care, and we are just going to say, God, you take them back because you deserve all the glory. We don't deserve anything. But the Bible talks about Christ's reward, and it is the best 401K you can pay into because it is not something for when you retire on this earth for a few years. It is eternal rewards, and Jesus said, treasure up your treasure in heaven. We work for Christ's reward. See, the bottom line of this passage, verses 8 and 9, as it comes down to the the whole ground for the whole passage, says this, Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free, and then the end of verse 9 says, Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both master and yours, he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. And what I I boil this down to is saying, Paul's saying, you know what? God sees, and God rewards accordingly. God sees all, and he rewards all accordingly. And it does not matter your title. And it does not matter if you are a boss master or slave or servant or pastor or CEO or director or supervisor or doctor or PhD or whatever it is. The Bible says he shows no favoritism. It says God sees all and he rewards. And isn't that what we all want in our work? I mean, really, when you go into work, don't you just want to know that somebody sees and that somebody rewards accordingly? I mean, you ever go into work and you're thinking like, well, I wonder if anyone noticed how early I showed up. You know, did they notice how early my first email went out? Or how late I stayed? 
or how much extra work I put in. And you wonder, did anybody see? Did anybody notice? Because we all just want somebody to see and we want somebody to reward accordingly. And this passage is telling us God sees and God rewards accordingly. And if someone else sees and rewards, great, but it doesn't matter. They don't have to. Because if they don't see, just know that God sees. And God rewards accordingly. And his rewards are the best. And that's what we often all want in a work environment. We just want to know that somebody sees and that somebody rewards. And this passage just assures us God sees. God rewards. The devil has a strategy when it comes to work as well. He wants, the, he wants you to focus so much on the hard aspects of work that you hate work. The devil wants you to love rest and pleasure so much that you will hate work and do anything you can just for pleasure and rest, that you will overwork yourself so you don't have to work anymore. That's the strategy the devil has for you. And this is because if the devil, if he can find a way to do that, then you are, not, then you are on your way not only to finding ways not to work, but also resenting the one who created work and who created you to work. See, that's what the devil would really want. Devil's strategy is really that he, not only, he doesn't want you just to hate work. He wants you to hate the one who created the work and the one who gives you work. Because the bottom line is this. Work is a gift from God and your work is a gift to God. Work is a gift from God and a gift to God. The devil would want you to see your work as a curse. And then he'd want you to look at God and say, see, he's the one. He's the one. He'd want you to look at that verse I showed you at the beginning of this message and say, God wants me to work. Well, I don't want anything to do with God. He wants you to hate work so much. But the truth is work is a gift from God. And our work and the way we work is a gift to God. Just before we gather around this table to receive communion, let me just give you one, uh, one life and one example that I, I kind of saw this in. And uh, I asked him this morning if I could share this. And I told him I just want to brag on him a little bit. Um, I don't know if he's even in here. He was in the first, first service. Uh, he may be out uh, ministering now. But Louis Duyon, one of our deacons, and uh, where is he? Someone's pointing at him. There he is. There's Lewis. Lewis, one of our deacons. If I think about, and I haven't seen everyone in their workplace, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, there's probably a lot of people like this. I just know Lewis because I've seen Lewis in his workplace. Lewis is a doorman at the Four Seasons in Boston. And Lewis, every time I've been down there, if I'm walking down the city and, I, and you're at the public gardens and I say, let's just see if Lewis is here, every time I see him, he has the biggest smile on it. It's not just on Sunday morning when you see him here. He is at work with the biggest smile on his face than you will ever see. And if you're going to have a head greeter at your church, he might as well be a doorman at the Four Seasons. That's, <laughs> we set our standards high. But Lewis goes into work joyfully, and I asked him, I said, how do you do it? You know, what, what is it? And he says, first he said, because I'm thankful for the job that I have and the work that I have. But then it's going into work as a Christian, because he knows he's serving God. And Lewis knows the names of those people, 
And, and I've seen him, you know, in action. And, and he opens the door and he says, welcome back, Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so. And, and, and he brings that to his job in such a way that people take notice. 2006, Lewis was given an award for the best employee of the Boston Four Seasons for the entire year. And he was given a, he was given a award for, uh, that he could pick. Was it anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world? Anywhere in the world. You could go to any Four Seasons anywhere in the world and they would pay for it. That's a pretty good earthly reward even though we're working for heavenly rewards. <laughs> That's not a bad earthly reward if you're going to get one. But people took notice and they said, Louis is exceptional at his work. There's a lot of exceptional people that work at a five-star hotel, but Louis stood out. Stood out to another person. I, I, I read a story. Uh, uh, he was telling me about, uh, I actually saw it on Facebook. It was a Facebook story that a lady had wrote a letter to the, to the Four Seasons about Louis because she was driving home. She was driving, and she was driving through Boston. She got a flat tire. She was on the side of the road. Louie was driving home. And you know how it feels like when you're driving home after a, after a long day at work, right? Especially if you've got a job like Louie's where you're on your feet all day. You just want to get home, right? So, but he's driving by, and he noticed this car on the side of the road was a guest at the Four Seasons. It was a regular at the Four Seasons. So Louie could have easily just driven by. Hey, it's been a long day. I've punched out. I'm off the clock. I'm going home. But he pulled over. And he stopped and he stayed with her for an hour and a half until her tire got fixed. And she didn't even know until the end of it she recognized him and realized that he was from the Four Seasons Hotel. And she wrote this glowing letter to his boss thanking him and saying, what a great employee you have. He could have driven right by, but he stopped and he stayed with me and he helped me. See, when you're working for someone else, you drive right by. If you're just punching the clock and working for your boss who's never going to see that, go home. Put your feet up. Relax. But if Christ is your boss and you're going to go about your work in a Christ-like way and your reward is in heaven, you pull over to the side of the road and you stop and you work for him. And that's the kind of work and I know there's other examples of that. Louis is just the one I know, and I, I happen to see him go about his work, and I love the way he goes about his work. You don't have to change your job to change your work. You don't have to change your job to change your work. There are a lot of doormen at the Four Seasons. There's a lot of doormen in Boston. But you go about it in a way that honors Christ, and people take notice. And so as... We pray, I want to pray, and I'm going to ask those that are going to serve communion to come, and we're going to gather around this communion table. But as we do, I just want you to ask yourself, how can you change your work even if you never change your job? Now, you may change your job, and you may be looking for a job, and you may, but how can you change your work to be more honoring to Christ if you never change your job? Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this passage of Scripture, and I thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, I thank you for the privilege to work for you. And even as I say that, Lord, I can't help but remember there are many in this room today who may be looking for work. And many who, I preach a sermon, they'd say, Pastor Rick, I'd take the most mundane job. I would push a button all day long. I would do anything just to work. Lord, I just ask that you would provide for them, that you would hear their prayer, 
that you would give them not only a place of provision, but also a place of purpose. Give them a place where they can go and work for you and work like you. Lord, I pray for those of us who are here and have jobs and we're grateful that we would have, first of all, a gratefulness for them. Lord, but I also pray, and whether we get a paycheck or not, that as we go about our work, we would do it in a way that says we're working for Christ. We would do it in a way that points people to Jesus so that they would notice that there's something different in the way that this person goes about their work. There's something different in the way that this person treats other people. There's something different in the way that they work. And we could say it's because we're not working for this company or for a boss because we're working for Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would transform our work environments even if you never change our jobs. That we would work as if we're working for Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name.